And in Romans chapter 5, we will be covering these last four verses, verses 18 through 21 today. <coughs> As I have said to you, over the past few weeks, this is not a traditional Advent section. It's not a section that you would be accustomed to listen to during Christmas season, during Advent season. And yet the themes that exist here from this larger section of Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 really get us to the essence of Advent, get us to the primary themes of the Christmas season. Themes like humanity being broken, separated from God. And the only way that we can be brought back into relationship with God, reconciliation with God, that the brokenness of the world can be addressed and overcome is through the coming of God taking on human flesh, incarnation, paying for the sins of humanity, reconciling God and man and giving us hope for this world and for the one to come. That's Advent. So in light of that, I want to read verses 12 through 21 again. We'll recap just very briefly what we have discussed over the past couple of weeks. And we will pay attention to the details of verses 18 through 21 specifically. So let's read together. This is God's word. Therefore, the apostle says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
May God bless us and encourage us through the reading of his word. We saw in verses 12 through 13 a question posed and an answer given. The question is, why are people including us the way that we are? Paul's answer in verses 12 through 13 is, because of universal death and universal sin. And Adam, the representative of our race, the first man, he rejected God's one exclusive law. And just like God said, God had warned him, he died and all of his offspring and then his sinful nature spread to all of us. Another question is implied in verse 14. That question is this, will it always be this way? The apostle gives us the hope that no, God had a plan to bring hope and restoration. Notice at the end of verse 14 that there was one who was to come, a seed of the woman, a promised redeemer. It is interesting if we have eyes to see that we can see the contours, the promises of Advent, of Christmas, throughout the scriptures, if we have eyes to see. Last week, we posed sort of an overarching theme. That's what Paul does in verses 15 through 17. The theme is that Adam and Jesus acted as representatives of humanity. In verses 15 through 16, we find that Adam's sin resulted in death. Death characterized by separation from God, condemnation, a guilty verdict for humanity. This sin resulted in death for all. But by way of contrast, Jesus' gracious gift brings life. Life characterized by reconciliation back to God. A new verdict, not of condemnation, but of justification to all who trust him. Furthermore, in verse 17, we found that Adam's sin brought about the fear of death. But Jesus, by way of contrast, brought about the hope of life. Again, these, these contours, these, these shapes of Christmas in this text. But that brings us to our text for today. And first of all, very simply, in verses 18 through 19, God's word teaches us that Jesus has overcome sin's penalty for his people. Let's read verses 18 through 19 again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, this is legal verdict, this is courtroom stuff, one trespass, Adam's trespass, Adam's breaking of God's law, led to a guilty verdict for all men. So one act of righteousness, Jesus who lived perfectly, and through his substitutionary death on the cross, taking our place through this act of righteousness, contrasted with Adam's act of unrighteousness, it leads to justification. A very different legal verdict. A verdict of not guilty. And this resulted, as Paul says at the end of verse 18, in life for all men. We'll come back to that last 
tiny phrase at the end of the verse in just a minute. That all men phrase. And then verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, this is Adam, the many were made sinners, this is their nature, so by the one man's obedience, this is Jesus' act of grace, specifically at the cross and through his resurrection, the many will be made righteous. Jesus has overcome sin's penalty for his people. Some of you may be C.S. Lewis fans, if perhaps you haven't read some of his more well-known works, perhaps you've seen some of the movies that have been made over his Chronicles of Narnia series. In the seminal book of that series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you know the story, the children go through this magical wardrobe full of fur coats and stuff in this old English manner and end up in an entirely different world, a world called Narnia, a world that at one time had been characterized by peace and righteousness under the reign of a lion named Aslan. It had fallen under the specter, under the, the horror of brokenness. And a world that at one time had been characterized by, by spring or something like an eternal summer, winter had set in. It was cold and it was bleak. These children enter into this world, into the brokenness, into the darkness, and immediately find themselves in danger and peril. But hope is going to break in, for the lion is going to return. And if you know the story, he's going to put the evil witch down through his own sacrifice and bring hope back to this land. Relatively early on in the story, after the children enter into this dark and cold eternal winter, they are walking through the fields and the forests, and Santa Claus comes along. And the basic truth that C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate is this. Winter is not so bad if you know that Christmas is coming. Winter with no Christmas is a horrible thing. And for years, a long time, Narnia had existed with, with no Christmas, no hope. So it's fitting and God's divine providence. And I, I know, by the way, for you historical nerds, that there are arguments that Jesus was not actually born in December. I know this. But it is fitting and it's appropriate that we celebrate this special season at this time of year. And as I sometimes sort of joke with us Buckeyes, us Ohioans, we feel this, right? Yesterday was my wife's birthday and we went out and ran some errands and had fun together. And one of the best things that God did for my wife yesterday, other than her oldest son cooking her pancakes, which were surprisingly very good, was that he sent the sunshine. That's very important for my wife. My wife struggles in the winter when it's dark and gray. But we got out in our truck yesterday and took all the kids and went out, and, and the sun was shining when we went out. It was wonderful. But those of you who lived in the Ohio Valley for a long time, you, you know, like, this is a pretty dark and great place. Like, you can't see right now, and you're probably, 
uh, don't want to see, but I'm looking out these back windows, and it's a gray sky. And, and that's just the way it is here most of the time. But in the midst of the grayness and the darkness and the cold, we celebrate this season, which reminds us that, that there is life in the midst of the darkness. There is hope in the midst of hopelessness. And that's what Lewis was, was communicating in the story, that, that winter is hard. A reminder that, that death has seemed to, to set in and, and oppresses us in a sense. But, but if there's Christmas, if there's life in the midst of the, the death and, and light in the midst of the darkness and hope in the midst of the brokenness, that we can wait, that we can hold on. And that's what Paul is communicating here in this text. For thousands of years, humanity had anticipated an overcoming of the sin, an overcoming of the brokenness, a reconciling of the brokenness. And that's why Jesus came. Adam's trespass, and this gets to the heart of what sin is. We can pause here for just a moment. I was talking to a family that I know well who is looking for a church. And one of the churches that they suggested I look into as I look through the website explained sin as a mistake. I know what that church is trying to communicate. I'm trying to soften the blow a little bit so that, so that when we come in we can hear the word of the gospel that even people who perhaps have no identification with, with Judeo-Christian themes of theology can, can come in and recognize their own mistakes, their own shortcomings and fallenness. But, but at the same time, on the other hand, that's a very big and massive underselling as to what sin is. Sin is not just a mistake. A mistake is whenever you cook a frozen pizza too long, right? That's a mistake. Sin is a willing trespass. It's a breaking of a law. And it's much more than going 72 in a 65. That's stretching the law a bit. This is much bigger than that. This is the divine creator, the one true God, telling humanity how they should live in accordance with his character and wide-eyed with full awareness, them trespassing that law, them going beyond the bounds of the boundaries that he had set for their good and doing it out of sheer high-handed rebellion. That's what Adam did. What Adam did in the garden was not just a mistake. One of the things that makes Adam's sin all the worse, all the more heinous, so to speak, is that Adam, unlike us, was perfect. Adam knew what it was like to have perfect harmony with his creator and perfect harmony with his wife. We've never quite known such a state, but, but Adam lived this way. Adam knew what it was like to live in perfect communion with his God. There was zero fear, zero guilt. 
that's a compelling notion. And yet in that unfallen state, in that perfect communion with God, he had one law. And that one law was don't eat from that tree. It was very clear. He could not just stumble into this sin. He had to do it wide-eyed. And, and that's exactly what he did. Sometimes it feels like, for us Christians who have 66 books that make up our Bible, that there's hundreds of things that we're supposed to do. Tradition tells us, as we read the Scriptures, that Israel and the Mosaic Law had 612 laws. Some were positive, things you should do, and some were negative, things you shouldn't do. If you add up all the other things that we're compelled to do, either by explanation or by implication, we have way more than that. Do these things. Don't do these things. It can be dizzying sometimes just trying to remember the things that we are supposed to do and to avoid the things we're not supposed to do. But Adam had one. And unlike us, he had a perfect heart and perfect communion with God. He was perfectly happy. And yet the poisonous lie of the serpent the hiss of the forked tongue compelled him to believe that there was something missing. And I think we have to believe, as we think of Adam psychologically, that he fell inside in heart and mind before he ever took a bite of the fruit. Because he believed that somehow God was actually a killjoy rather than a joy giver. That he was restrictive rather than generous. That he was cold rather than warmly loving. And then Adam's wicked, high-handed, wide-eyed breaking of God's law, going beyond the boundaries of God's allowance, led to condemnation for all men. It is as though a cosmic gavel hit the bench of the judge's seat and the legal sentence of condemnation fell heavy on Adam's ears. And since then, we have been living under the specter, under the fear of this condemnation, this legal sentence ever since. But the wonder of Advent is that Emmanuel has come. A second Adam. A better one. One who was compelled by his father to live under all of the same laws and more, but who would not and could not trespass beyond the boundaries God had set. Jesus, a real man and a real God who knew that joy was to be found exclusively in communion with God and who with a perfect mind and a perfect heart and perfect performance, perfect obedience kept all the laws of God. And yet he died not because of his trespasses, but because of all the sons and daughters of Adam. 
And through his perfect obedience, and more specifically, Paul probably means this one act of righteousness is a reference to Jesus' death, that he allowed himself to be murdered as a substitute in our place through his death, burial, and resurrection, a new legal sentence can be given. The gavel can fall once again. And rather than the horror of the wooden gavel pounding on the desk of the judge, ringing in our ears, reminding us of our separation from God and our coming condemnation for all time, the falling of the gavel now rings in our ears as the hope of life. We could not earn it. We would not even try. And this new legal declaration is open for all men who will believe. Paul is not saying, in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, that this legal declaration will be granted to all. Otherwise, the rest of Romans has to be cut out of our Bibles. Paul is very clear in Romans chapters 1 through 4 that only those and all sinful people, Jews and Gentiles alike, Paul declares, are under condemnation. Only those who receive the gift that comes through Jesus will be justified. We saw that very nearly in this context at the end of our section from last week. Notice in verse 17, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So who are these all men in Romans chapter 5, verse 18? They're the ones who receive the gift. So Paul is not teaching universalism here in Romans 5.18, that somehow, passively, the gift of Jesus' righteousness is credited to every human being that's ever lived. What Paul is saying here is that this gift is available to all people without distinction. So, to clarify, Paul's not saying in Romans 5.18 that all are saved without exception. Paul is saying that all can be saved without distinction. All people, everywhere, anyone who will receive the righteousness of Jesus and the payment that he paid in our place. Paul once again contrasts Adam and Jesus in verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that is their nature, by contrast, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's a stark contrast. We saw a similar effort that Paul made in verses 15 through 17 last week. Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He goes on to do that further in verses 20 to 21. Jesus has not only overcome sin's penalty for his people, new legal declaration for all who will receive him by faith. Furthermore, Jesus has overcome sin's curse for his people. What sin's penalty? Condemnation. If you will receive Jesus by faith, this penalty can be removed from you. 
But Jesus didn't just remove sin's penalty, he removed sin's curse. What's sin's curse? It's death. Verses 20 through 21, the apostle says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we fear? We fear death. Why do so many people, most rational people, not like winter? Because it's a reminder of death. Why did God send the law? And he means specifically Moses' law. These 600-odd laws of what we are to do and not to do. Why did he do that? He says in verse 20 that he sent the law to increase the trespass. Earlier on in this section... Specifically in verse 13, there was an age when Moses' law had not yet been given to humanity, and yet humanity still was sinful. They violated their conscience given to them by their Creator. But the law was given so that we would very clearly know the boundaries God had set. The law, in many ways, is a reflection of the character of God. Much of Moses' law that he gave to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people, taught them about how to love God and how to love each other. Why is that? Because God is love. So laws were given to his people, his broken, fallen people, to teach them that fundamentally we should live as lovers, lovers of God and lovers of others. We are to share. Therefore, we shouldn't steal or covet. We are to live at peace with one another. Therefore, we should not deceive or hurt one another. We are to live in harmony in our families. Therefore, children should obey their parents, and parents should treat their children kindly. We are to take care of those less fortunate than us, just as God blesses all of us broken people despite our sinfulness. So therefore, we are to take care of those less fortunate among us. So in the Mosaic law, God gave specific commands so people would know what his character was like and they would live accordingly. The law came in so that we would know very clearly what it was like to know God and to live according to his will in keeping with his character. When specific laws are broken, we are more clearly aware of our brokenness. Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 7 that if he had not been told not to covet, this is Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he would not know what it was to covet. He might have a general conscience idea that he should not crave other people's stuff. But as a child brought up in the Jewish faith, because he was told not to covet, every time he coveted, the sting of such an offense was brought to bear on his conscience. As a bit of a parenthesis, this is part of what we do when we parent, right? 
If we're good biblical parents, we are telling our children from the very beginning two seemingly paradoxical things. So consider your little four or five-year-old. Before they can really understand their sinfulness fully and really understand that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became a man and, and came to pay their penalty and grant them his righteousness, they can't quite maybe grasp all that yet. You're telling them from the beginning two contrasting things. You're, you're telling them, don't strike your sibling. Don't hit them. Or don't steal cookies from the cookie jar. Or don't lie to your parents. You're not allowed to do that. And then paradoxically, you're telling them something on the other hand. I know you can't stop. You will not be able to tell the truth all the time. You will not be able to not covet those cookies. You will not be able to always be kind to your sibling. Why, my precious little angel? I say that tongue-in-cheek. Because you're sinful. And then you come right back and tell them the other paradoxical thing, but you have to keep doing it. Now, why are you doing that? Now, practically speaking, you're doing that so that your, har your home has some measure of harmony, right? Like, you don't just get to say to your kids, well, you have a sinful nature, just go do whatever you want, right? Like, that's not the way families work. And, and if you're parenting that way, you're missing the point of, of the scriptures. You're telling them, no, this is the way God wants you to live. You will be happier. Your creator will be glorified. But then you're saying to them, again, the other paradoxical thing, Apart from new birth, apart from recreation by God's Spirit, you can't do these things. And then you tell them a third thing, the most important thing that ties the paradox together. You desperately need Jesus. And then if you're a good, insightful parent, you tell them that you need Jesus. Because even though God tells you to do all the right things and not to do the wrong things, you still struggle. And your only hope is Jesus. Advent is a good season to think about the trajectory of our parenting, right? You bring laws to bear on your children's hearts so that they will understand their inability, their fallenness, the limits of their abilities. But then you point them to Jesus, who alone can give them hope, who alone can make them new, who alone can give you hope, who alone can make you new. God gave the law to clarify what sin was, to make us fully understand just how broken we are. But notice the great contrast here in verse 20. Where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. And that's why we celebrate Christmas in the midst of winter. It's hope in the midst of hopelessness. It's a brilliant, shining light in the midst of darkness. Paul doesn't so much mean here in verse 20 that the number of people that Jesus will rescue from sin will outstrip or exceed the number of people trapped in sin. Our experience tells us otherwise. So we do have to deal with a little bit of theology here. 
as you observe the world around you, by and large, are people fundamentally trusting in the righteousness of Jesus, not trusting in their own righteousness and destined for eternal life? Does that make up most of the populace, even in this Judeo-Christian nation? And the answer, sadly and tragically, is no. Most of the people around us, friends, neighbors, even family, by and large, in regard to, to sheer numbers, are not resting in the righteousness of Jesus. Paul's contrast here doesn't really have to do with the number of people still fallen as compared to those who have been or will be rescued. It's not really Paul's point. It's not the extent of the number of people. Paul's point here is that in the midst of such tragic brokenness, the treachery of humanity's sinfulness, that it is a miracle, a wonder, that any will be rescued at all. Which means, my brother and sister, the fact that we are sitting here today, most of us, resting and trusting in the righteousness of Jesus is a miracle. You didn't come here today because of the plush seating, right? You didn't come here today because you're going to win the lottery because you're connected to Jesus like some sort of lucky charm or talisman. You are here today because you are sojourning by faith, hoping only in the righteousness of Jesus. And it's a crazy miracle. I remember not long after we moved here, we moved from South Carolina. Some of you might wonder why we would move from Shangri-La up back to Ohio. I'm an Ohioan. This was where I'm from, and this is where I belong. And so uh, occasionally in South Carolina, we would get snow. Um, it would be like half an inch, right? Schools would shut down for three days. There'd be no bread or milk in the shelves. People went nuts. You know, kids are trying to sled on hills, and like, you know, they have no idea what they're doing. And of course, me as the Midwestern, I would just laugh at these fools in South Carolina. I couldn't wait to get back to Ohio. And again, I know some of you think I'm crazy because you love the South. Uh, but I remember we came back. It was our first winter back, and it snowed. And I was so excited. We had uh, a, our first uh, Labrador retriever at that point. I don't even know if Jack was born yet. I, don't, I think he was uh, coming in a couple months. And uh, I remember it snowed, and uh, we lived in an apartment at that point over in Westerville. So I packed up our dog in the car. It was just me and her. And we went over to High Banks. I think it was one of the first times we'd ever, you know, gone to this metro park. And it was really quiet. And I walked around with her down by the Olentangy River. And it was beautiful. Not because the trees were in bloom. They weren't. There were no leaves left. Not because the grass was green, verdant. It wasn't. It was brown and couldn't see it anyway because it was covered. But I remember very distinctly on this white, quiet day, if you will, surrounded by death, in the midst of the forest where all the trees looked dead, a cardinal flew down, which is one of the reasons, again, I love Ohio, our state bird, right? And against this brown, dead branch, against the white snow, the stillness of a dead winter, this beautiful, brilliant male cardinal 
And I had a terrible BlackBerry phone or something at that point that had like one megapixel camera. And I have a picture of this somewhere. And I've never forgotten that. It was as though God was saying to me, in the midst of death, there is beauty in life. In the midst of the brokenness and tragic sinfulness of humanity, this, this red color reminding me of the blood of Jesus that has covered my sins and brought me reconciliation back to my Father, was reminded me from God that God makes all things new, that he brings life into the midst of the darkness. And that's Paul's point by way of contrast here. It's not really extent of the boundaries of who will be saved or not saved, but in the midst of brokenness, that there's any life at all, there's any hope at all. Against the backdrop of death, God sent me a reminder during my little hike that day that that death would not have the final word that God the giver of life the reconciler of humanity would have the final word and what will that final final word be that's verse 21 so that as sin reigned in death that's one kingdom grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord that will be God's final word. That despite the fact that we live in a Narnia-like world with a seeming eternal winter, that death and evil and wickedness and brokenness and separation from God will not be the final story. Grace will reign. A new kingdom will come through righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus because we don't have any. But if we will receive it by faith, as Paul says in Romans 5.17, what will be the result for us? What will it lead to ultimately? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Winter will go away. Summer, for all of you lovers of the sun, it will be the norm. And all of this will be through Jesus. What do we do with all this? Here's some thoughts. It's a great hymn that we sang a couple of weeks ago. We're going to sing it again next week at our Christmas Eve service. O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Notice the, the horror of these next lines. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. That means craving. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth thawing, in other words, a breaking away of the iciness of the hold of sin. And then notice these next lines. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. You see, Romans chapter 5, as I've been arguing over the past few weeks, is about Advent. It's why Jesus came. Jesus came into the grip of of this icy, dead world to thaw our hard hearts and to lead us to trust him and to receive his gift of righteousness. Here's some, just, some suggestions for how we apply this as the people of God. Um, Advent, the coming of Jesus, provides us with a unique opportunity for intentional reflection and a season to foster these following things. First, humility. We don't have any righteousness of our own. 
I say to those of you who have not yet trusted in the righteousness of Jesus and you are seeking to establish your own, stop. It's a fool's errand. God will not accept you because of what you have done. You cannot do enough to overcome your trespasses. The horror of sin is that we are separated from God and one day will be condemned by him. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to grant righteousness to people who don't have any. So if you have not yet trusted Jesus, today could be the day of salvation for you. Trust Jesus. For those of us who have, isn't it shocking and sad that so often we still seek to establish our own? My friends, you don't have to strive so hard. Because of the righteousness of Jesus, we can confess sin. We can repent. We, we can live transparently. And we need not try to bootstrap it through life by our own strength. If the story of Advent is anything, is that Jesus came as a humble man to rescue proud men and women. Advent gives us a unique opportunity to reflect upon our hearts and to pray for humility. Next, Advent provides us a unique season to foster gratitude. As humans generally, and as Americans specifically, has there ever been a more ungrateful people? We compare ourselves with other people and we strive and work ourselves to the bone to achieve things and to gain things because we mistakenly, foolishly think those things will make us happy and then we get upset, angry at God when we don't have all the things that we want. But is Advent not a season to reflect upon all that we have? Certainly physical things, warmth and food and family and so many more things, but, but most specifically the fact that, that God the Father who didn't need us in the first place would send his own son, his greatest gift, to rescue us and make us sons and daughters again, we who were his enemies. It's astounding. It's shocking. It's a miracle. Advent is a season for us to consider and to foster gratitude all we have been given as a gift. Thirdly, it's a season for us to foster hope. Why? Because our verdict is settled. If you have trusted Jesus, if you have received him by faith, if, if you're staking your claim on him and him alone, a new sentence has been handed down. You, like me, who were on death row, justly so, a new verdict has been handed down. Clemency has been granted. We don't need to fear, for our verdict has been settled. Which leads us to this next thing that we must foster peace. We don't have to be afraid anymore. We'll talk about this next week in our Christmas Eve service. 
We'll have a little time to bring the children up. We'll have a children's sermon that's really geared toward them, and then we'll have a, a pretty short, I promise, uh, adult teaching time next week. But next week we're going to focus on the fact that Advent gives us the opportunity and the hope that we don't have to be afraid. I'm convinced, because I spend a lot of my life doing essential counseling most of the time, it's kind of what I do most of the time, that most people are scared to death all the time. They're scared of money, they're scared of their jobs, they're scared of their spouses, they're scared of their kids, they're scared of their friends. You're scared of everything. But if the most important thing has been taken care of, our eternal destiny, eternal summer, breaking into the midst of this broken winter, if that's been taken care of, will God not take care of your finances and your job and your health and your relationships? We don't have to be afraid. And then lastly, it's a time for us to foster mission. Lost people all around us, living in fear of an eternal winter that will never go away with no Christmas, what do they need? They need good news. Good news that it won't always be this way, that it doesn't have to be this way. That warmth and light and hope can break into their winter and one day that winter can be taken away and they will live eternally with their creator in perfect harmony. How will they hear unless we tell them? So we have this responsibility and this privilege to take the good news of the first coming of Jesus and to give it to people who desperately need it. May the Lord Jesus do all these things and more for us at this special season. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now I pray <clears throat> that you will take these words that we have read and considered, that you will help us to understand them, that the evil one will not snatch them away, and that they will change the way that we think, change the way that we feel, and change the way that we act. May we hope in you, you who are the second Adam, you who are the bringer of hope into our darkness, you who are the, the giver of life in the midst of death. We pray that we will trust in you and hope in you and speak of you. So grant these requests, we pray, for your glory and for the joy of your redeemed people. We pray these things in humble faith, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.